0: Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella,
1: and I'm Sharon Lever,
0: your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market, influencing executive priorities. Our episode sounds different today. That's because we're recording outside of the studio, practicing social distancing. Today, we're joined by analysts James McQuivy and JP Gounder to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the future of work. Welcome, James and JP.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to be here.
0: Probably not surprising, guys, that we've talked a lot about the impact of COVID-19 on this podcast, but it would be great for you to dig into specifically how this crisis has pushed the future of work forward.
2: Well, it's absolutely obvious that we're in a time of change, and what has happened to so many people, they've assumed that this change is starting from scratch. And what's interesting about our future of work research is that everything we're saying and what we're going to talk about in this conversation are all things that actually JP and I sat down in December as we were convening our team's research plan for 2020. And we said, "Okay, these are the things that we're going to work hard. In some cases, we thought, for several years to persuade people that they needed to attend to to manage the future of work and it gave us at the time you know an opportunity to make sure we understood what mattered to sort of gear ourselves up and say this might take two or three years to persuade people that they need to see the market this way and they need to prepare to respond. And, of course, what COVID did, besides the obvious um, pain and and tragedy that it's causing, is it just put in front of everyone all of these things that we thought we were going to have to take two or three years to persuade people to care about. It made them urgent right now. And interestingly,
3: there there are some emerging technologies that have suddenly become um, much more interesting, and some of those companies are seeing a lot of inbound interest. Now, of course, there's the obvious ones. We all know about Skype and Zoom and Teams and all the collaboration work. But have we thought about physical robots? Um, for example, many of the grocery stores in the United States now require a single file line, one direction, and no cramming in the aisles for social distancing purposes. And so taking inventory is even harder than it usually is. Compounding that, you have the supply chain issues. Now, last year at my keynote um, you know, in our Digital Transformation and Innovation Summit, I spoke about these robots that roam up and down the aisles of the grocery store using computer vision from companies like Bossa Nova and the tally, um, And those seemed like they were so far away. And now those companies are finding all sorts of inbound interest uh, for something that, they, that companies really have an acute need for.
1: James, you, you mentioned that that you all started this research while while ago at the beginning of the year, pre-pandemic, if you will, or at least the, the impact of the pandemic. It fast-forwarded the effort or the, or the move towards it, for sure. It caught a lot of organizations off guard, and not surprising. I, w- I would think that even as we were advising clients back in January, it was probably under the guise of, hey, you've got a little bit of time, at least, to figure this out, start planning for the future, but it wasn't so urgent. What, in your view, um, and JP would love your, your comments on this too, what do you think caught them off guard the most? What were they the least ready for when it comes to all of the things that come with Future of Work and how quickly it was put in front of them?
2: Well, I think that we've just gotten into this bad habit, which is strange considering that we live in one of the most innovative eras in history. That we've gotten into this bad habit of thinking, oh, this new thing, I've got five years before it's going to matter to me. And I think that's what's been happening in employee experience. As in our work, as we are focusing companies and clients on customer obsession, we've said to them over and over, in order to do this right, your employee experience has to be factored in. We've got all the proof in the world that that customer obsession benefits the organization, benefits the employees, benefits the the profitability of the company. Um, And yet, clearly, in there, people said, Oh, okay, all right, well, we do know we need to improve the employee experience and that it will net for the business overall an increase in productivity and profitability, sure. But we've got five years to figure that out because our competitors are going to take five years to figure it out. So there's this strange mix of we believe the future is going to happen we just don't think we have to act on it this year and so maybe it's just a psychological shift where suddenly because of the pandemic so many companies have had to realize that you know figuring out what it's like to support employees in a flexible work schedule where they might work more often from home well now we have to do it in 2 days not in 2 or 5 years and so that urgency is, is new because of the current circumstance, but the underlying question isn't new. It's not something that came out of nowhere and surprised us completely.
3: Yeah, certainly the work from home um, sort of imperative that emerged here, something we've talked about for quite a long time. And the experience of decision makers that I've spoken with has been, um, in in many cases, for knowledge workers who uh, were equipped with some history around this, maybe it wasn't terribly bad. Right. They could make the technology work, Um, but there were also all these other underpinnings that have made this experiment even harder than it normally would have been like having children and pets in the home and, you know, being reliant on a space that maybe you didn't realize you were going to work in all of the time all of the psychological dimensions and the cultural dimensions that add on to the technology challenges. Uh, I talked to a company that said, you know, overnight they needed 500 VPN licenses that they didn't know they were going to need, and they needed to figure out if they could make that work. Um, And, you know, I think that, On some level, it's been a very impressive step up for some companies who've been able to do that. But we have to remember that somewhere around 40 to 50 percent of folks are also frontline workers who cannot work from home. Um, And for those folks, it's been a whole different challenge. So I think companies probably were not ready for all of this to compress into just
2: two months. I'd like to pick up on that thread, JP, because you bring up this very important dimension that is specific to employee experience, not just the tools of employee experience, but the psychology, the you know, these are individual humans who are wrestling with, yes, the tools but also their job description, the way they're going to be measured for you know promotion or or hopefully to uh, to avoid if there's a reduction in force. all of that psychology that's happening inside of people, you know are, uh, we have here Forrester Ariel Chazinski, who has been a strong advocate for making sure that corporate health uh, plans in countries like the United States, where where companies are often responsible for providing health insurance, that they have options for health, mental health as as a benefit. Well, and we clearly are in are in agreement with her work that says that providing mental health as a benefit is a good idea. Well, suddenly all of these companies that thought of that as, you know, check the box on my list of benefits that I'm giving. They're suddenly actively seeking, you know, how do I put those resources in front of people in a way that respects their privacy, but makes sure they're aware of them and gives people the time and the space to act on those resources? And and how do I invest in the telehealth solutions that will allow my people to get that support that they're going to need specific to this situation? It's just a, a great example of how this is a technology thing. It's a pandemic, but it's also a very human circumstance that people are involved in. And I'm not just talking about the employees. I'm talking about the direct managers who might say, you know, everyone's telling me to be an empathetic, empathetic leader at this time. And I don't even know what that entails because my job has been to make sure that people hit their quarterly goals, not to make sure that they feel necessarily good about it. And suddenly I'm looking into their bedrooms uh, while we're having meetings, and I'm trying to understand whether or not they are feeling well enough to hit their quarterly targets, which is not what I was trained to do. So you can see how employee experience sits at the nexus of all of these things, and this will define the future of work.
0: What is the role of community here for an organization as well? I feel like there's always been this separation between work and life that is certainly a lot clearer than it is today. Is there a component of sort of the responsibility of the organization as it relates to building a community amongst employees that is also kind of taps into some of the mental health um, component, you know, either like parents getting together and sort of sharing stories about dealing with that dynamic or say individuals who are living by themselves or maybe with roommates they don't really care for. Is there something also in the mix um, on that point?
2: This is an area we can actually borrow from the work that we do on the consumer side and consumer psychology, because for several years now, we've been suggesting to companies that they learn how to have a more value-centered personal relationship with their customer where that's appropriate if that's appropriate to your industry to your business and to your brand and in that whole process the fair question to ask is well does my customer want to have that relationship with me and in some cases the answer is yes in some cases it's no but think about it from an employment perspective. I mean, on the one hand, you come to work, you already are, you know, joined at the hip with this organization because you're spending hours per day, multiple days per week, depending on you know part-time, full-time status. And this is the provider of the bread on your table, so to speak. And so you'd say, well, of course, you already have a relationship with that employer. But then the question I think is still relevant, the same question that we put to the brands that we talk to on the consumer side do people want to then invest emotionally? Does the the workplace need to become a, a substitute family or a, an ancillary family or set of friends, a club? Is that the center of your social experience? And should it be for some people, maybe other people, it will never be, And there is no one answer to that question is my point. And so we're seeing companies now struggling with, we wanna be there for our employees, but at the same time, we wanna recognize that they, some of them have those relationships already and they don't wanna feel obligated suddenly, uh, if you feel obligated to, well, now I have to show up to the after work hours, uh, virtual happy hours so that everyone knows that I'm a committed employee when, you know, I need that time for my family. Um, that, that conflict is going to be very, very strong, I think, and, and it's not just a question of how do we schedule the work-life balance and recreate the divide between the two. It really is a question about what's the long-term emotional relationship that you want to have with your employees and that they, important, that they want to have with you.
1: I mean, this is a good point to, to take a step back. We dove right into the current state, the current world that we live in, and, and the fact that it's it's sort of accelerated us down the path towards the future of work. But you all just published a report that outlines four key forces or, or what you call shocks that will define or that you need to be able to handle in this future of work. Can you walk through those four at a high level? And then maybe we can dig into them in more depth, but I think it would help to frame all of these different pieces that are, that are inextricably tied together, but put them in a bit of a structure so we can start to form that picture of what the future of work looks like.
2: Absolutely. The important thing to remember as we talk about these four things is we're talking about these shocks. Almost as as if there are shocks coming at you from the side, sort of a shock wave that's hitting you from the side. You could conduct your business the way you've been, you know, building your vision, your strategy, and your execution plan, um, without expressly incorporating those shocks into your plan. And you'd think, okay, we have our plan, we know what we're doing, we're going to move forward. Um, but we really strongly recommend that people don't do that because these shocks have a tendency to blow you off course or knock you off course. Uh, And as we're seeing right now, we're living in the first one. So the first of these four shocks is what we call systemic risk. And systemic risk includes what we're in the middle right now. These are external or exogenous uh, experiences that are happening, and they can be economic shocks, they can be economic risk, they can be uh, supply risk, they can be weather and climate related. But in this case, obviously, it's a global health pandemic. These are things that you don't have any control over, uh, but you do need to have a plan in place for how you're going to manage uh, in order to, to address. So that, that's the first one. The second one, JP, maybe I'll have you introduce the second one. So the second one is the
3: long-term impact that automation and artificial intelligence are having on how we work. Now, we've been tracing this for years now, and we've built forecasts to say, you know, RPA, DPA, AI, all of these technologies that take certain kinds of tasks out of the job set and give them to software have been growing over time, right? Um, And what we think is that these robotics type forces are gonna transform the way we work. Uh, In the acute moment, it may be that there is a replacement effect where certain jobs are lost. However, the automation economy also necessitates the creation of new kinds of human jobs. People need to be able to run these systems effectively Um, And most acutely, all of our jobs will eventually be impacted as we pass certain tasks off to the software and our jobs change as a
2: result. You know, one of the effects of all that automation is the generation of data, Uh, data about how the AI and other tools that we're bringing into the work mix Um, how how those things are performing. So that generates data, but also how the humans are interacting with and training and helping to make those things more successful. But data actually is our third shock to consider. We are referring to it as the employee data tsunami. And our expert on human capital management tools, Mark Brandow, really is the one who said, we need to describe this as a tsunami because it is a wall of data coming at us in a situation where today's Employers don't even effectively use the data that they have right now, much less know if they're uh, prepared to protect that data and protect the privacy and security of that data. So that data tsunami, that's shock number three, and perhaps JP, I'll hand it back to you for shock number four.
3: And of course, there's employee power. Now, as long as there's been labor, um, employees have had, you know, uh, various kinds of relationships with their employers, sometimes really good, sometimes challenged. Um, In the recent era, much as we see in our customer research, right, customers have unprecedented power due to things like social media and mobile and the connectiveness of the world, And the same is true for employees to some extent, right? Um, You are going to make decisions about your employees, about this pandemic, but also just in general, that get reflected on Glassdoor.com reviews or that get reflected in LinkedIn. Um, You know, employees have a voice. They have an increasing number of things that they are interested in, and they're also very cognizant of their own employee experience. So over the long haul, we have been expecting that successful organizations will not just accede to that employee power, but to sort of co-opt it by creating a great employee experience and working with employees to shape what that future looks like.
1: So clearly so many parallels to the consumer world for sure. But maybe I'd like to go back to shock one, that systemic risk. And I have to ask you guys, honestly, was that one of the shocks before we hit the pandemic? Was it something that you thought rose to the same level as these other shocks pre-March 1st?
2: Yeah, the, the really satisfying news that I can tell you is that it, it indeed was. Um, what I'll be honest with you is we didn't have it as shock number one. So we thought of it as a context within which all these things are happening. And we actually had pandemic uh, because, of course, we live in a world where SARS just happened in the last 20 years, uh, swine flu in the last 11. So it's this is not completely new, the idea of it, but we thought of it as a one among many Uh, Not recognizing, of course, back in December and then January when we were plotting this out, that it would become so acute, so important, and so primary. So we did. We moved shock number one to the top of the list, which I think is appropriate. Uh, It doesn't mean the other things become less important. In fact, the thing about these four shocks is they are interoperating with each other now so intensely during this pandemic that it's it's really, uh, I'd say, accentuated my conviction that these four are the things we need to keep our eyes on because they have a tendency to have ripple effects on one another.
3: If I could just add, you know, um, one of the really interesting points about this is uh, I had been thinking about this shock for a long time in the context of climate change. Um, The problem with climate change, of course, is that it is the proverbial boiling frog in the pot of water, right? It is something that comes up rather over time. Yes, there are these punctuated moments like a hurricane uh, or the Australian wildfires or something like that, where you say, hey, there's climate risk out there. Um, But it is not a global phenomenon necessarily that everyone buys into at the same time. Um, The pandemic, by contrast, has hit, you know, every country in the world within just a few weeks. Um, And so the nature of how systemic risk plays into this has become uh, sort of newly interesting and important.
2: I don't want to say, though, that it becomes less important after we're done with this pandemic. Uh, and in fact, we're clearly going to see, and, and Stephanie Bolores, who is our group director over security and risk, of course, has made it clear that learning how to deal with something like a pandemic is going to be not just a necessary thing after this is over, but a, a key differentiator for companies. Uh, and, and we agree with that on an EX perspective, You know, employees like JP was saying before, are under the heading of employee power, We'll look and see how did they handle that last time? So risk is is going to continue to be, we're okay keeping it as shock number one. I'll just say that a particular aspect of this, I think is going to be employee health and wellness. And, and that's an area uh, that is related to data about employees, of course, and employee power. But there is uh, something in the external world outside of the company that is going to affect the way employees come to work expecting that their work. their workplace treats their health and wellness, not just specific to whether or not they're infected or at risk for being infected by a particular virus, but in general. And I think that is going to be a fundamental aspect of systemic risk, employee data and employee power as a result of this pandemic uh, going forward.
1: Well, to the point you made earlier, that actually fundamentally could change the role of an employer, correct?
2: That is exactly the question. Can the employer step up? Should the employer step up and say, "You know, we are here to ensure that you are healthy. Maybe the government doesn't have that role. Maybe uh, Google and, and Apple don't have that role. Maybe we do uh, as an employer. And that's that's something we're going to have to watch. And that itself is part of the systemic risk. If If all the other companies in your particular market start treating health and wellness as their responsibility, you're going to have to as well.
3: And it has to go beyond the checkbox to your earlier point, James, where uh, many, many, many companies have employee wellness programs and they have health programs, but um, are they really taking outcome-based ownership? Are they really making this embedded in the fundamental relationship they have with their employees? And I think the jury is out on whether that will become the, the modal way that this happens, but it is in the mix. It's something we need to think about. Companies like Salesforce have uh, actually invested greatly. They have this huge wellness center online that they developed for this pandemic, um, and they also now have made it public.
0: It's... A little bit related to the the second shock in terms of preparing your workforce for robotics and automation too, like what is the role of the organization as they evolve or actively change a worker's role, right? There's a little bit of a connection there.
3: You know, we found this to be very important over the last uh, couple of years of our research and we're... Focusing on it in a renewed way this year, which is to say, um, when you are making a big change, like taking um, automation and applying it to certain tasks, which could be very significant tasks that were done by manual labor before, you need to have underlying that change, you need to have the right kind of skills, inclination, employee experience, and culture that will help your employees to adjust to, to drive business value from, and to thrive when working side by side with robots. So, you know, this issue of AI and automation isn't primarily um, just a technology challenge. I mean, you can figure the technology out. We can help you figure out who the best vendors are. We can help you figure out, you know, what kinds of products are effective. What keeps these things from succeeding and to, from driving the business value is that the people, the leadership, and the organizational structure aren't there. And by people, again, we mean skills and beliefs and your culture. Um, are you open to this? Um, and by leadership, we mean do you have a vision for how these bots that you're putting into place are going to work side by side with and and succeed in collaborating with your human employees over time? Um, the, the company Santander Bank, for example, I interviewed them. They have a really great system in place. They're thinking seven years ahead, what will our mixed human and machine workforce look like? How will the skills that the human employees have need to change? So that we can upskill and reskill people, so that when we have more software in place, this system works well uh, as a as a single uh, mixed workforce. So there's a lot one can do, but it comes down to these fundamentals: your people, your leaders, and the org structure.
2: It's another area where there is this very heavy question of who in society is going to take responsibility for this. You know, we were just talking about health and wellness. Now we're talking about lifelong learning which you know the universities right now are under such dramatic disruption because of the of the coronavirus affecting the way they're able to hold classes and and what they're able to offer students and so it's really creating this open question mark of you know, who is going to be in charge of your lifelong learning? And do you have to self-source it uh, as an individual? Does your company take over and say, look, it matters less to us what degree you walk in the door with. What we care more about is your ability to participate in our in-house learning systems so that we can certify you forward. Uh, there's So many interesting outcomes that this could take. But I will say this, none of those things will happen if uh, you as an organization don't see that as a genuine investment that you're making in employees, as opposed to benefits boxes that you're checking. And, and we've said a lot about box checking and and how bad it is, I guess. Uh, but I don't know that we're, that we're going to hesitate to continue to do that. Because, uh, for example, I was, I think, forever changed by an interview I did last year for a piece that we wrote about non-college educated workers facing these kinds of changes. I did an interview with a gentleman who, Uh, is um, graduated from high school and has attended some college and then has had a a very satisfying career in a chip fab, uh, a manufacturing plant that makes uh, semiconductor chips. And um, he there, you know, has risen in the ranks and, and it has a, he's, he's very happy with his career and his job. Um, but I asked him about some of these lifelong learning benefits. And he said, look, it's, it's all been up to me. Um, and I said, well, you know, what benefits does the company formally offer? And he said, look, they have this thing where you can take night classes. It says on the list that that's one of the benefits. But in order to qualify for that benefit, you have to go talk to your manager and your manager has to approve the particular class. And then they have to uh, reimburse you the amount for the class under a certain limit. And he said, nobody here in this factory has ever taken advantage of this benefit. And you start to get the feeling that that's the way the company prefers it. Now, if that's the environment, if that's the ethic of the people laying out the benefits plan, well, I can guarantee you that the employees aren't showing up to work ready to give 100%, Out of respect for how they're being invested in as human beings, and that's the ethic that we we genuinely believe. That's the ethic that's going to get you through these four shocks in the years that come.
1: Well, also if you embrace that, if employers start to embrace that and and want to bring about that culture, bring about a change in their role of helping the overall growth and well being and future of their employees, it starts to feel like if you do that right you drive employee loyalty, very similar to in the consumer world, right? What's interesting about that to me is we're coming off a moment in time where I think there are so many people thinking the future of the workforce is the gig environment, right? The gig worker, um, everyone becomes a contractor or self-employed and just kind of hop from gig to gig rather than sticking with the company for 20 years, How do you see this playing out? Do you think most organizations will embrace this broader role and therefore will kind of swing the pendulum back to the world where. Employees stick with employers for the long haul if they're really driving that level of loyalty.
3: You know, it could be actually that both things are true. You could imagine a time in the future when we have a relatively smaller FTE, full-time employee workforce, but that those people are treated with, um, you know, extreme EX, where the employer has both implicit and explicit contracts in place with that worker um, about the relationship that they're going to have. But at the same time, you're going to be Tapping further into uh, contractors, freelancers, gig economy, contingent workforce provider companies, as well as the AI and automation that are out there. Now, in such a world, what you would find is that the traditional pyramid that is hierarchical and rather static and very fully populated with people, uh, especially at the more junior level, would be replaced by something more like a diamond, where some of those junior people or less essential uh, long-term strategic workers are going to be from outside the company in the form of contingent labor, or they're going to be coming from the world of AI and automation. That's not to say you might not hire an outsider for a very senior role as well. I've actually spoken to people who have had temporary gigs as CMOs uh, because they needed a particular kind of marketing uh, transformation to happen, and then that person moved off after six months and got a full-time replacement, but I think that's a possibility that some companies out there are going to say, you know, for reasons of flexibility and adaptiveness, we're going to keep the FTEs on the smaller
2: side, uh, and we're going to go outside when we need to, and the dis- the determining criteria that will help companies figure out who they're going to invest in. And that FTE role that you described, JP is going to be data. I mean, you are going to make the decision about who's in and who's out. If you want to describe that as being in or out based on the data that you have about them. And this raises all sorts of issues about what data should the company have visibility into? Will there be a world in which, I proactively share data from prior employers or ser- prior projects that I've done, not just on a resume to get in the door, but so that it can be factored into the company's understanding of where they should put me to work and what kinds of things they should expect from me and how I should be expected to perform so that I am able to land well and basically audition for a slot in this full-time employee role that JP's describing, where I'm then going to get the rewards of being invested in uh, as a long-term employee. There's so many interesting things that could come about, but it will all depend on the data and what permissions companies have to use that data for uh, and what uh, policies they choose to enact.
1: The employee data tsunami, maybe we can hit shock three and shock four together. They, in some ways, are very complementary and in some ways almost work against each other, if you think about it, right? If, if there's this tsunami of employee data that employers have, that's a double-edged sword. That That's great to have all that information. It also, to your point, there's the privacy concern of the employees. And on the flip side, employees have a lot of power because they have a lot of information as well about the employer. So how does this play out over time? What data is good? What what data is the most important? And how do you manage it to make sure it becomes a benefit, not a risk?
2: Well, let's start by just parsing the types of data that the organization has. You, you can almost think of it as a as a layer where the foundation layer is just existing employment data needed to run the business that's you know benefits related uh, time in the role uh, your quarterly performance all of that stuff that companies currently have, and in many cases, struggle to manage well. And that's what the human capital management tools are trying to help them do more effectively. Now, on top of that, we're applying data science to to that existing base of data to say, what are the network patterns of relationships in our organization, the communication flows across these people that will help us identify pockets of potential productivity or or insight or innovation that we're not effectively we're not using effectively and that's that's a layer abstracted from the existing data that's already sitting there but above that there's a whole additional layer of either explicit or implicit data about the individual themselves their wellness their health this is where we get into those uh, you know fitness tracker questions where the company gives you one and says you know we're going to give you a a benefit if you take a certain number of steps a day uh, and so on that that's a whole extra level this is before we start talking about critical care kinds of health and wellness tracking related to something like the pandemic and the, the the novel coronavirus so we're you know already at the core the the lowest level of that data foundation we we are challenged significantly challenged to use it in any way that is strategic and that is particularly uh, likely to feed back into innovation and, and increased employee experience. And so, you know, we're working with companies to help them do that. There are many vendors that are working on extracting that data. Uh, some really, really intelligent things happening in AI related to using that data, all of that. Um, but the I think the vision question is probably the one that is still unanswered. What's our vision for that data? Because you don't want to start asking people for data if you don't know what your vision for that data is going to look like, much less the policies for how you're going to protect it. Because that's what's going to trigger shock four. As you say, these are related, where someone's going to say, No, why are they tracking all of this? Why do they need to know this about me? Do they know every web page that I'm on? Do they know, you know, how long I speak? Are they recording my voice when I'm using the Voice over IP phone system, all of those kinds of questions, you do not want to trigger those without already having thought about what your answer is.
3: So Big Brother um, is kind of an EX negative, if you will. Most people don't want to be micromanaged and measured within an inch of their lives. Um, They want to have a sense of autonomy. They want to have a sense that they are trusted uh, and that that trust is reciprocated then in turn by them. In the current environment with the pandemic, we're finding a lot of experiments on the edge here, uh, using computer vision scanning to understand whether someone has a fever at work or whether they are social distancing in a warehouse. These kinds of technologies could be employed for the employee experience, in in other words, to keep people safe. However, That requires a certain baseline of trust among the employees. And what I think we're finding is that in various pockets right now of the economy, where frontline workers are being asked to shoulder so much, including a lot of danger that they didn't really sign up for in the form of the pandemic, um, how this relationship between employer and employee evolves around the use of these tools, my belief is that it's going to have to come together as something of a co-creation where you get lots of buy-in from these employees and the employer also gets what they want. It requires a bit of a new relationship between employer and employee, particularly in frontline work.
0: So we just went through the four shocks and I know there's a whole body of of research coming down the pike, but can you just maybe give a a preview as to what some of your guidance is for organizations to shock-proof themselves, if you will?
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, it's it, it's weird to say it this way, but we describe it as the good news is we see these shocks. You know, we're, we're not going to have to wonder for the next six months, what are the shocks that are going to face our organization or affect the way we do business? We, they're already here. Uh, and in some ways, that's good news in an otherwise troubling time. The better news is that we already know what the tools are that your organization needs to uh, to use to become more effective at using in order to manage these shocks and their many interactions. And, and those tools, that's what we're writing about now, uh, tools that we've already been writing about, but we're putting them in this context of how do you now turn from understanding these shocks to turn toward what are the tools that we're going to, to use? and the tools are are simple things. We're talking about employee experience and the tools associated with measuring and investing in in your employee experience. It also includes the robotics quotient, which is JP's work that he's invested in over years to say, how do we measure whether the company is prepared to handle, to plan for and handle the employment-related shocks that come from automation and robotics? Uh, And he calls that the robotics quotient. We're also just looking at human capital management, not as a HR function, but as a strategic contributor to understanding your organization, your employees and and how they work. Um, And then we're talking about leadership development. If if you think about it as a very horizontal thing, you know, historically at Forrester, when we've talked about leadership development, we tend to aim at the highest levels, the the C-level, the people one notch down. How do they lead their digital transformation? How do they lead their uh, changes to, in response to mobile and these kinds of things we've studied over the years? Well, now what we're looking at is not just that upper level leadership, which obviously has to be bought in. This vision has to come from them. But we also have to worry about the line manager. Because if an employee finds out a potential benefit and goes to their line manager and says, hey, the company, in order to improve my employee experience, has has promised this benefit, and then the line manager says, yeah, I didn't get that memo, or I don't know how to approve that, or, well, it's up to me, and I just don't feel like it today, you know, we're in order for this to happen. It has to happen across the whole organization, and that means every line manager needs to be effective effectively brought into this process. So those four things, we're looking at your EX, your employee experience, your robotics quotient, your human capital management and talent management approach, and your leadership development across those four things, really, you have what you need to respond to these shocks.
3: You know, when these shocks are coming your way, there's not one single response every company is going to have to use the tools available to them to respond in the best way possible this is part of the nature of competition in the capitalistic free market society that we have and so you shouldn't think of the shocks merely as something that is happening to you there are something that's happening to everyone but how you choose to innovate your way out of it, using your superior mastery of employee experience, using your capabilities in the area of RQ, the robotics quotient, using your leadership skills and using your human capital management skills. All of those responses are in your repertoire. That's your action, your agency, and that's where you get to distinguish your firm from others.
0: Thank you both for joining us today.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: Thanks, James. Thanks, JP. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.